recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, May 20th, 2011. This week, episode 209 is being broadcast from our studio in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man. Hey, Joe. Hey, started early this morning and flew in from Atlanta just to do this show. (laughs) Hey, wouldn't miss it, Cliff. Okay. Got a great guest this week at the controls is our engineer, Austin. Stone Cold Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. We have an interview with certified public accountant and investment banker, Mr. Fred Rock. Looking forward to discussing some financial issues today. We will have a little halftime news. I have uh, a little new document that came out. We'll chat about that for just a minute. Then we'll go back to our interview. We'll bring our technical director in at either halftime or for our closing comments on the roundup, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Check out our Facebook page if you get a chance at IAQ Radio Program. And don't forget Cliff's blog after each show. Check that out at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. To listen to the show, just follow the link on your invitation or go to the iaqradio.com website. The show can also be downloaded from our website, uh, well, actually from the Go To Show link on our website or from iTunes. And to uh, listen live, you also have to go to that Go To Show link. Don't forget, we also have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC continuing education credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the schedule of training courses you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. You can email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations. <laughs> to Andy Krasowski, Comcast Metal Products and Mars PA for yet another win. Uh, he was the first person to answer last week's trivia question, identifying Paul Kret as the industrial designer and architect who designed the University of Texas Tower. 
The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, May 20th, 2011 has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. Name one of the world's wealthiest investors who is the son of a Republican congressman, made his first stock purchase at age 11, filed his first tax return at age 14, listing, listing his watch and bicycle as deductions. Uh, he owned a chain of pinball machines in barber shops at 15. Under his picture in his high school yearbook, he wrote, likes math and future stockbroker. Name him. Interesting. Cliff, you're going to do the honors today? Thanks, Joe. All right. Okay, today's guest is Fred Rock. Fred is a managing director in Pennsylvania of Focus Investment Banking, a Washington, D.C.-based investment banking services firm. Fred has over 30 years' experience in investment banking. He's advised clients on matters relating to strategic and operations planning, including evaluating, financing, and structuring new or growing business ventures, as well as executing acquisitions and the sales of businesses. Mr. Rock has experience in many different industries with a significant number of clients in the manufacturing, energy, franchising, and distribution sectors. Mr. Rock has a BS in accounting from Syracuse University and has completed the Wharton School of Business, University of Pennsylvania Advanced Management Training Curriculum. Mr. Rock is a certified public accountant and is a member of the Pennsylvania Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, where he has served on the National Small Business Advisory Committee. Mr. Rock also serves on the board of directors of several charitable and civic organizations and was an advisor to the U.S. Senate Cole Caucus. He resides in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How about his intro music? I'm a super deal maker. If you want to sell or buy, just sign my agreement. You'll have an LOI. Due diligence takes an hour. Deal closes in a day. The lawyers are so easy. And then I get my pay. I'm a super deal maker. If you want to sell or buy, just sign my agreement. You'll have an LOI. Okay, Fred, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today on IQ Radio. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, Fred, what is an investment banker, and what functions does an investment banker perform? Well, an investment banker is partially an advisor and then a uh, person who helps uh, owners of businesses actually sell the business. So what we do are a number of things. Normally, we uh, we meet with owners of businesses who are thinking of selling, and uh, uh, A, we, we try to analyze the business, and if we have enough time, we might advise them on some of the things that they can do if they have the time, that might increase the value of the business from what it might be worth today to what it might be worth in two or three years if they if they followed our suggestions. We also help them understand what the range of value for their company is so that before they start a selling process, they at least should understand what their business might be worth. And sometimes uh, it requires a discussion because many people think their companies are worth more than the actual current market value of their company, and that's part of what we do as well. Then we, we talk about the process of selling. And then lastly, we, we identify targets. We have some very uh, – most investment banking firms have uh, uh, excellent databases. They, we're always in contact with potential buyers, whether they're strategic buyers or financial buyers, so that we, we know a lot of people who are interested in buying. Uh, and then we assist in the sales process. We uh, put a book together which tells people what – the company really is and the strengths of the company and then we negotiate with uh, the prospective buyers and if we have a number of buyers we even do a little bit of an auction to hopefully get the price up and then we we work with the accountants and the lawyers uh, the, the, we don't draft documents and we don't do tax planning but tax planning obviously is part of the process so we're part of that team with the tax advisors usually the accountants and then we we work with the lawyers who tend to draft the documents that uh, ultimately are used in the sale of business. That's a pretty good summary. Thank you. Absolutely. Why? Now, 
obviously people always, when they're thinking of selling a business, they think they need an attorney and an accountant. And can you give us, give the listeners an idea of um, how the additional services you just described will help with respect to, you know, getting them a better offer or um, maybe having them learn more about what the market's like and maybe timing it better? Well, I think that's a a good question because uh, the the truth is uh, I could argue uh, that, you know, you don't need an investment banker to sell your business. I could even argue you don't need a lawyer. But the reason you use specialists is for a number of reasons. So let me tell you why we're different. Uh, No no professional group is all things to all people. So lawyers do a great job in uh, in documenting agreements. Uh, they do a great job in some final negotiating of, of, of key points. Uh, accountants are great at uh, doing the tax planning uh, and, and dealing with with those kinds of issues. But investment bankers, all we do is sell businesses. So that you know that's really our experience. And, and on top of that. Because that's all we do, we have access to more potential buyers because we, we are always looking for sources of, of companies or uh, groups, uh, like private equity groups, that are looking to buy certain companies. And so that, that's part of what we bring to the table. Plus, we are negotiators. Uh, we, we are not lawyers. Uh, we're not accountants uh, by, by practice. And so we have a lot of experience. So I think it's if you take a look at the best deals that, that are put together, uh, they're done because there's a, uh, an investment banker leading the effort and as part of the team, a good accounting firm and a good uh, lawyer as well. Fred, you know, this is not a great economy. And what effect does the current economy have on market prices for businesses? Good, good question, too. Uh, I'll start off by saying that the, the best time to sell a business is when a business is doing well and the perception is that the business will continue to do well. Then at the same time, the economy is good so that there is a belief that the economy is continuing to grow and then there have to be lenders because part of getting the uh, of buying a company from a buyer's perspective is they don't always have all the money to make the acquisition so they need lenders to be part of the process so when bankers are free with their money they can afford to offer more money to buy the business so the best time is when you do well when the economy is doing well and when and when bankers are lending pretty freely and, and the answer to your question is if you would have if you had the same kind of company in 2007 than you have in 2011, you you could get as much as 50% more for your money at that time for your company, for the same company, than you'd probably be able to get today because at that time there was a perception of continued growth. And today, as you read, and we all read, uh, businesses, uh, the economy is growing now at 5 or 6 or 7%, but probably at 2 or 3%. So the perception is that, you, that the seller's business is not going to grow at 8 to 10% a year, which was the perception three years ago. And when you're growing at 8 to 10% a year, Obviously, I can a buyer can pay more for the business. The other thing is the economy. It's not as robust as it was then. And lastly, bankers who were very free with money and therefore helped buyers pay more, buyer, bankers are a little bit more cautious. So the answer is you can. St- I mean, things have improved dramatically from the prices that you could get in 2009 or 2008. And it's a pretty good market. Probably it's a it's as fair a market today to sell your company, all things being considered, as it was <clears throat> probably for the last ten years, with the exception of maybe two thousand and seven and two thousand and six when everything was looking great before the big bubble burst. Fred, how do, how do you go about <coughs> valuing a business? Is it is it similar for different types of businesses like uh, you know a lot of our listeners have service type businesses. Some sell some products as well, and um, but I think I, I'd say the majority are probably more service related. Type service people. and consultants, you know, and we have a lot, of, we have a lot yeah. of people that do consulting. Is valuation of the business different based on the type of business? Um, 
I'll say yes for 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 certain reasons. Uh, obviously, the um, the more easily it is for someone to get into the business, the less valuable that type of business is. So, if you have a specialty uh, and not something that, or maybe you have a territory that you have a significant impact on, then it might be more difficult for someone to come into that business without buying you and just start. So part of the answer is if you have a unique position or a market position that someone else can't replicate, that adds value. So the the, the answer to valuation is ultimately it's a function of uh, of cash flow, what people are buying is a stream of revenue and a stream of earnings. So they're going to look at your stream of earnings. If you were fortunate enough to be in technology where they could say you, your, you know, your revenue could triple in three years and your earnings could quadruple because of the new technology that you have, obviously that's going to dramatically impact valuation. If you're in a service business or even a service and some product sales, uh, a lot of it depends on, you know, have you been stagnant? Are you are you growing, and is there a reason to grow, a reason to believe you're going to continue to grow? That's All that is going to affect valuation. So each business is different, and it's a function of all those things that I just said. I mean, so some people, and I know uh, one question people have is, should I get an outside valuation? Uh, the, the answer is, if you're looking to sell your business, uh, other than the fact that if you have a someone, a minority shareholder who might fight you on selling the business and you might get a valuation just to protect yourself, a buyer is not going to look at a valuation. He's going to make his own determination of what your business is worth. And and therefore, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a function of that. So there are, in, in non- technology-relating businesses today, uh, uh, depending upon a number of factors that we can talk about. Companies are probably selling anywhere from uh, four to five to maybe six times uh, we call EBITDA, which is uh, earnings before interest, tax, and depreciation. It's really a function. It's sort of like cash flow. So, and, and that's and we can go into some of the factors if you want why, why companies sell at the high end of that range and why companies would sell at the low end of that range. Well, I think we'd like you to do that. You know, why would a company uh, sell at the high range and then and they'd sell it? Right. Well. Uh, one of the reasons you'd sell at the high end of the range is because you have strong customers who have been with you a long time and the buyer is comfortable that if I buy you, I'm going to keep this customer base. Uh, a. B, that you are performing. Anyone who's going to buy you is going to look at the industry in general to the extent that your margins are equal or better than the margins in the industry, that you're a good operator, uh, that's going to add value rather than someone whose performance compared to uh, their peers is, is, is less, than, uh, uh, less than stellar. Uh, the other thing is, the, the, the more important the owner is to the business, the less valuable the business is. So remember I talked earlier about some of the things that you could do if you have a couple of years. If if one of your listeners is the key person in the business, a buyer is going to say, well, once that person leaves, there's really nothing there. So the answer, and, and therefore the value of the business is going to be at the low end. So sometimes a good strategy is to bring some good people aboard and put them in senior positions so when you're looking to sell the company, you can tell the buyer, and more importantly, the buyer, can see that when you leave, nothing's going to happen. There's just a good team there that has all the relationships and nothing's going to change. Another thing is if you have one customer that's 80% of your business, that's a bad. Obviously, people are concerned about that. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that, uh, so, I mean, th- those are a lot of the things that have uh, a barrier of entry. If it's so easy to come into your business, you're going to be at the low end of the margin. If you have some things that make you special, you'll move to the higher end. And I guess ultimately it's, have you been growing? And are you looking to continue to grow? That'll price you at a higher end. If you've been pretty flat, 
and and can't make an argument that you're going to grow meaningfully that's going to put you on the low margin. So those are a number of the issues that, that if, if you talk at ranges of four to six, why some people sell at the high end and some people sell at the low end. And I would imagine they many businesses go for less than even the four. Is that accurate? Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, there, there's, there's another factor, which is size. Uh, the smaller a business is, the uh, there's a lot of money available for large businesses or for you know medium-sized businesses, and I'll, I'll go to uh, up to five million, five to ten, ten to twenty, and over twenty. Uh, so obviously, you want to sell to buyers who have a lot of money. But the other, the other side of the coin is buyers with a lot of money are not buying five million dollar businesses. They're buying ten, twenty, thirty million dollar businesses. So there's a value to size. So uh, uh, one strategy might be if you're at a five or six million dollar business and you have a good business and you're making money and you'd like to sell, one of the strategies is buy one or two other small businesses where you won't have to pay that much for them. And now you're taking yourself from five million to eight or nine in two years, and that moves you to a higher uh, to a higher multiple. Uh, so sometimes a good selling strategy, if you have some money and you have a good team, is to buy a company or two uh, smaller companies than yours that you can fit in so that you'll be a larger uh, company when you go to market to sell yourself. You know, that, that helped me because I, I was thinking to myself when, when you were talking about this that some people that I know and, and myself included are, you know, they're kind of happy at the level they're at and they're not really pushing hard to grow their company at, at a certain point in time. And and it could be for no, any number of reasons. They just don't want more employees, you know, to, to deal with or they don't want to put up as much money as is necessary to grow the the business or put the time and effort in. But you really helped me understand there some strategies to help with that issue for people who are in that situation. And uh, that's that was very helpful. Cliff? Fred, um, is a merger and an acquisition two words for the same thing, or is there a difference? There's a difference. A merger uh, is generally considered when when one company when when a company exchanges stock to another company and brings that other company aboard so usually in a, in a in a merger no uh, cash doesn't uh, change just stock changes so uh if my company merges with your company uh uh my company might disappear and instead of my stock i now have stock in your company uh, an acquisition, uh, so all, some acquisitions are mergers, some acquisitions are for cash, but most mergers are stock for stock. But the reason that's important is uh, if, if I merge with your company and you're, and you're in control, and now I have stock in your company, but I only own 40% of it and you own 60% of it, two things just happen. Number one, I didn't get any cash, and B, I don't run my own business anymore. If we have a vote, you have a 60% vote, I have a 40% vote. So you could fire me. And there's a lot of things you can do that I might not be able to to counter. Uh, if, if it's an acquisition, you might still want to hire me, but the good news is if I get my cash and now I work for you, you can fire me or I can leave, but at least I put cash in my pocket. So I'm really a little bit more in control than if it was just a stock-for-stock stock deal. So usually one of the things that we advise on when it's going to be a merger, and those things do happen, is that you put provisions into the agreement that says even though I'm a minority person, things can't get done without my permission, and uh, you can't hire your son, and you can't fire me, and you can't give yourself more salary without my permission. And uh, uh, and then there are provisions that you can try to put in that uh, allow you to sell your company, to sell your shares, and require him to buy you rather than going to him four years and saying, you know, I'd like out buying my stock. And the guy says, well, you know, uh, I'm not selling. I pay 10 cents on a dollar. And at that point, if you don't have any free, if you haven't covered it in your agreement, you're really uh, exposed. You know, so it's I, I guess as, as, 
as a buyer, if I was buying a business, um, would it be better for me to buy the assets of a company or to buy the company's stock? Okay. Uh, the, the, only re- the, 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 the only major reason why you would want to buy the stock, and I'll tell you why you should want to buy assets, is uh, sometimes, and I, I've done some deals where the primary asset of the business that you're buying is a contract with a major customer. And that contract can't be transferred. So I'm willing to buy the stock in the company because the reason I want to buy your company is I want to I want to own that con- I want to be able to operate under that contract and if I bought assets many of these contracts are not transferable so that theoretically the or possibly that contract would go away. So that's you often see that in in energy companies where a uh, coal company has a deal with a big utility company, but it's a contract and it can't be transferred. So usually it's a stock deal because you want to continue to be able to supply that uh, gen- that that, uh, that energy company. The reason you want to do an asset deal is for a number of reasons. Number one, you you get a step up in basis to the to the price that you're paying. So there are generally a lot of tax advantages of buying assets versus stock. And also, sometimes corporations have hidden liabilities that you're not aware of. And even though representations are made that everything is in the company, once you buy it, it's yours. And if some if something comes up that, that you weren't aware of, you are, let's say, a, a warranty claim for a product that you sold, that was sold even before you bought the company, but the company sold that product, and now there's a uh, uh, someone died. They can come back and sue the company that you now own, and depending upon whether you have insurance, you 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 have that responsibility. If you only buy assets, you didn't buy those predetermined or those pre-situated. All you you know what you got, and you know if you're going to assume liabilities, there are specific liabilities, so that you wouldn't. Uh, you just know better what you get, and there's no, and there's no hidden liabilities that could come to bite you a year down the road for something that happened in the company before you bought it. So generally, most buyers want to buy assets. Fred, how do you how do you go about advising your clients with respect to how to to time their sale? In other words, you know, I guess you know, how do you go about helping them determine when the best time for the sale is? Well, that's also a good question. There are many people that I talk to who say, you know, you know I, I'm going I'm to want to sell my business. I, there's no question. I'd like to sell it pretty soon, but right now business is great. And when business is great, I'm having a real good time. So, you know, let's, let me get it a little bit better. Let me keep getting better. And, you know, we'll talk about it in a year or two. What happens is, as you know, and as I said before, what's the best time to sell? The best time to sell is when you're doing well, and it looks like you're going to continue to do well, when the economy is doing well, and the banks are financing. There were a lot of deals in that started in 2007 that aborted because the economy tanked. The company was the same company, but the economy tanked, so the banks weren't lending money, and people started being concerned that, well, you might not continue to make all this money, and the truth is many companies started uh, a downhill spiral, so that sometimes, you know, they say pigs get slaughtered. Uh, Sometimes if you wait too long, uh, you know, people, well, now businesses don't go up forever. Everybody has a hiccup, and you don't want to sell your company when you've had a hiccup. So I guess what I'm saying is that the the, the timing is very important, and uh, sometimes you, you might want to sell now, even though you'd like to hang on for two or three years. I always tell people that's fine. And the truth is, if you continue to grow and the economy continues to look good in two or three years, you'll probably do better, and you made the profit for the last two years. However, if... If during that time the economy takes a downturn, things that really weren't your fault, and as a result your business suffers a little bit, you just lost value. So you have to be be cognizant of the risks of holding on, and uh, uh, and, and remember what I said about when the best time to sell. Okay, Fred, we're gonna stop for halftime now, and just hang on, and 
we'll pick you up in a couple minutes. Works with me. All right. Association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview with investment banker, Mr. Fred Rock. Uh, Fred, do we have you back on the line? Okay, I'm here. Yeah, you great. Fred, while we were, I was thinking about uh, a question. We've had several shows in the past where, at least one and maybe two, where uh, people were talking about preparing to you know, move on from their business, but they were looking at, and they, they were considering, and I think in one case they actually had, decided to sell the business to their, to their children. And I'm curious... What what role would you play in that type of um, that type of a, uh, a scenario, if any? And uh, do you get involved with those types of situations? Well, I do get involved a little bit in those situations, and the role I play is uh, a number of things. Number one um, is challenging whether you know, one of the things that happens often is is parents sometimes sometimes overvalue their their children's interest in the business uh work ethic and ability to run the business so sometimes when you want to turn the business over usually the business is a, a primary asset of the family so let's say you give the business to your son uh, as long as he continues to run it great and build it that's a positive but the other side of that coin is how does it affect your daughter who's not in the business or another son so one of the things we talk about is what is the effect of that decision going to be to the other siblings if there are other siblings and what are the things that you can do that uh, will tend to equalize or give the other kids uh, the, the the opportunity to have the same value in the estate that you've grown. So, and each family is different, but we talk about those things. The other thing to talk about is, uh, are they going to buy you a? Are they going to buy you? Is the son or daughter going to buy you out, or are they just going to continue to operate? So, do you have enough money to live without running the business? Uh, and if they're going to buy you out, what price uh, do you want to charge uh, them? Uh, and once again, that's a function of telling them, here's what you could get on the market. Now, you probably couldn't get that much from your son or even selling to a key employee because they probably don't have the resources. So as long as you understand that you're 
going to get something less than fair value, that's that's fine. The key is to understand what that is, and then you make a you know an informed decision. So we we cover value and we cover the the challenge of whether that child is the right person to do it, and then we cover how do you deal with that child and all the other children relative to the value of the business and how you're going to deal with your kids on a basis that creates equality, if that's what you want to create. So th- those are the services that that pretty much we, we go over. So I, I guess in essence you could say you provide the options that, that people have, and then, you know, life's a game of choices, and you have options, and you make a choice, and and if you don't know what the options are, you oftentimes can't make a very good choice or a very informed choice. So that that sounds like a great op- idea, at least to at least run it by someone like you before yeah. moving forward. Fred, I think you're handling right. You know, what about yeah. if I wanted to buy a business? Uh, how would an investment banker assist companies in terms of buying other businesses or doing acquisitions? That's another thing that we that, that's also a big part of our business. And the answer is that um, when you want to buy a business, what we found, and big companies find all the way, when big companies want to buy uh, another business, what they're really saying is, uh, I want to make some strategic acquisitions. Invariably, they will hire a an investment banker to help them. In smaller businesses, they sort of depend upon, I know this company that I might want to buy, uh, but the answer might be there might be 30 or 40 other companies that might be better opportunities to buy. So one of the things that we do, we have great database information. So we can identify a number of companies that uh, that that would fit the criteria that our client is looking for. The other thing that we do is it's possible that uh, a a company that's looking to make an acquisition knows the company that they want to buy, but that company really doesn't want to sell. So uh, by identifying 20 or 30 companies uh, that are not on the market, it's more likely that we're going to find one or two that might be interested in selling rather than the one that, that our client seems to think they know. So I think we add more uh, exposure to more opportunities, and that's that's probably one of the main reasons you use a banker to help in a buy-side project. Plus, plus, bankers are also helpful in helping to secure the financing needed to uh, uh, to make that acquisition and close it. Fred, I'm curious, how does the network of investment bankers work together? I mean, do they assist you with determining what assets or what other companies are out there available, or do you kind of work in a vacuum? Do you guys work together a little bit? I'm just curious. Well, we have a pretty good-sized mid-market firm. I have about 25 partners, and we're in four major cities, and then there are several like us who are in other cities. So uh, we work as a team, and what each and each of us uh, is is always talking to or emailing or getting emails from either uh, uh, local people who might want to make acquisitions, uh, private equity groups that might want to make acquisitions, and they tell you what they're interested in, uh, and even strategic companies that call and say, you know, if you know anybody in this specific industry, we're looking to, to buy more and more companies uh, to increase our, our market position in this industry. So I'm getting those calls, and I make those calls, as are my partners. So when we get an opportunity, a firm like ours, we will notify the firm, all of the partners. And it's more likely than not that even though I might have my contacts, three other partners of mine might have outstanding contacts that fit into the fact pattern that I'm looking for. So it's a team approach. Uh, it's not an individual approach, and, and the nice thing about having a, uh, a number of partners is we have a lot of tentacles out there. I'm curious. We have a large listener base of disaster restoration company owners and company people that work for disaster res- restoration companies. I don't know. I just think that, and I don't do that. I do more consulting, but I'm, I would think that now 
there would there would, it would seem to me there'd be an interest in from you know buyers in buying disaster restoration companies because of all the you know the spate of disasters that have occurred here just recently it kind of gets the attention up and so on and so forth can you tell me if i'm somewhat accurate in my hunch there no i i remember we talked about i think you're absolutely accurate remember we talked about what what are the criteria is that add value. The company's doing well in the perception that the company's going to continue to grow. I think you're in an industry that people believe, people, you know, have seen major disasters. Uh, I think this, I'm not sure whether there really is global warming or not, but it is an important one, I think. I think there's a perception that there's global warming, and I think that there's a perception that there are going to be more floods like we saw in the south, and uh, uh, and more hurricanes, and, and that, you, I, I would say the disaster restoration business, uh, whether it, you know, sometimes you have some dry years, but I think the perception is that there will be more and more good years because there will be more and more uh, disasters requiring, or, or you don't have to use the word disasters even, but just uh, whether things, weather-related issues, that's going to continue to need more and more of your services, that's going to get more types of companies interested in your industry, and that also is the reason why uh, you have a strong argument that the valuation uh, should should be at the high end versus another type of a business where there's really nothing that we can point to that would indicate that the that industry is going to is, is going to grow meaningfully. You know, we drive through neighborhoods and we see four sales signs in front of houses all the time. Occasionally, you'll see uh, a sign that says "business and property for sale." Uh, how do you go about advertising? A business. I mean, is discretion important, or do you just, you know, kind of put a big billboard up that says, you know, this business is for sale? Well, first of all, at the end of the day, there's not a lot of secrets. But you do not. I, I, I don't want to make a broad statement because each company is different. But I don't think you want it out in the street that you know. I don't think you advertise that my business is for sale for the following reasons that you might not find important. Your employees. Once I, if, if the word is around the shop that that uh, the guy selling his business, you know, we better start looking for another job. So you're creating an uncertainty, and in and, and every in every restoration business, there are other businesses around where these guys can or gals can can look and uh, find another employment. So you you don't want to create that uncertainty, and you have customer bases, I mean, you have insurance companies or other companies that that. Are your referral sources? If, if if the word is out that you are for sale, you know that that only means that creates an uncertainty. And if and if I can avoid it, I'd rather deal with with a more certain situation. So I might wait before I recommend you any further and see what you're going to do. In the meanwhile, there's another company I can refer uh, the business to. So I, what you want to try to do is, as long as you can, you want to keep it under the radar. And, and one of the good things of using a banker is we have non-disclosure agreements and other things, and we're not telling the whole world about you. Uh, we're only telling specific companies that we agree that we'll be talking to so that it, it keeps it confidential much longer. At the end of the day, when you're really now down to two or three buyers who are looking at you seriously and they're coming in to kick the tires, it, it gets out. But hopefully by that time, you're close to the sale and it, it, and you can you can counter it with your employees to say, we have a great guy, a great company that's buying us. This is going to be great for you. But you want to hold that off till near the end, as late as you can, I think. Now, there might be a listener out there who says it doesn't matter, and maybe he's right. But in more times than not, you, you want to keep it confidential as long as you can. Do you, would it be common for other companies in the same industry I mean, we mentioned before looking at other companies to grow your own business. So I assume one of the groups you look at as potential buyers are similar companies, maybe in other parts of the uh, market or in other markets of the country, I guess I should say. Um, and then that would seem to be 
that would make it tough to keep things quiet, I guess. But is it accurate that you do look at other competing companies as possible buyers? Yes, but sometimes our client will say, don't call this guy because he's really too much of a competitor. I don't want him to know his... You know, for you know, let, let, let's keep these guys off the market. I might talk to them right at the end when I have a good offer, but maybe I do want to see what this guy has. But I, I want, I don't want to talk to them until I'm close to a deal. So here are five companies I don't want you to talk to. But the other, you know, you you think that the the more likely buyers are someone who's in your industry, maybe in a nearby community, who wants to expand the geography. And of course, that's true. But you know, you're you're in a, you're in a, a, a maintenance service business, I, so it's not unlikely that other people who are not in your business at all, but who have uh, a lot of the same skill sets that you have in general, they, they might want to expand into another service line. So there, you'd be surprised how many related industries there are that might say, yeah, I mean, this is a great company to start buying into that industry. It's close to what I do. I understand it, but I'm not in that business, so I want to get a foothold. So I'll buy this company, and assuming it works well, I'll start buying you know, I'll, uh, buying other companies in the restoration business, even though I'm not in that business. But, I, you know, I clean office buildings, and I, you know, I'm a big maintenance company. I just don't do that work. But it's a, it's not, it's a, it's a, good place for me to expand. So, I mean, there's a lot of thought process as to who who targeted buyers are beyond just someone who's already in the business. And that's that really helps me, too, because getting another offer, hopefully having another offer in place before you let other people in your same market or area or, or I guess, uh, service know that you're for sale sounds like a really good approach. Fred, is there a typical range of fee for the services of an investment banking firm? I, I think that, that you know, I think there is a, 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 a pretty much of a standard. Some companies are a little bit different, but not dramatically different. And, and usually, the the approach is that there is a uh, a monthly fee. Once we're once we're hired, and the monthly fee is anywhere from four to ten thousand dollars a month, depending upon the company and the work that's involved. And the reason you charge, I mean, you, what you're gonna, what you're doing for that is putting together a book, uh, putting together, doing some research to find targeted companies. You know, using your uh, analysts' time and, and and databases to put that together, uh, reviewing all that stuff with your client, and then calling all of the company, contacting all of the companies in person that uh, that are on the list to hopefully get them interested in uh, in wanting in, in in the company and maybe making an offer. So uh, there is a lot of time involved in that process, and that's one of the reasons you charge that fee. But it, you're, you're not in it for that. And the other reason you do that, it it it, it qualifies the seller as someone serious. So if you don't charge anything, you really never know how serious the guy is. And you could find a good buyer. He might say no, and now you've wasted all that time, and you haven't even gotten your costs out of it. So there's that part of it. But the primary fee is the success fee. And that usually is um, uh, we call a Lehman formula. It's uh, usually in the neighborhood of 5% of the first uh, $5 million, 4% of the next $5 million, Three, two, one. Uh, sometimes it's a little higher because of the complexity, but on, on balance, it's it's a uh, it starts at around five, five and a half percent, and and works down depending upon the size of the deal. Uh, you know, for each tranche, uh, you know, the, the first five is one is a higher price than the second five. It, do you have a ballpark idea for listeners of? of how long it takes to sell, I mean, how long this process typically would take for a, let's say, uh, on the smaller end uh, size type business? Yeah, well, first of all, you have the, just to put the book together and get the list of targets probably takes a month and a half, month to a month and a half before everything, you know, getting everybody together and getting everyone to agree with all that stuff. And then uh, it probably takes about another month uh, to contact uh, prospective buyers. You know, they're not always around. 
and you know they need to show the and even if they're interested, then they need to show it to their advisors uh, to see you know are, can we afford this company and what what should we offer? So it, it, it probably takes on the low end about four four and a half months, uh, and on the high end about nine months to from start to finish to uh, to close a deal. Uh, I, I would say if you want to be on the safe side, think think six to seven months. Okay. Cliff? Yeah, Fred, can you provide some tips to a listener who would strongly be considering selling their business? Um, t- let's talk about your industry in- specifically. Uh, yeah, I-, I guess the tips that I would have would be uh, you probably have a number of listeners who have very nice businesses where uh, the owner is uh, the key is the buyer, he's the principal selling person, and although he's got a good team, he's really the whole show. Uh, as I said earlier, the more important the owner is, the less valuable the business is. So that one tip is to, you knowing that you knowing that you want to sell, build up your management team a little bit. It's going to cost you some money. Uh, but what you're going to get for your business should way more offset the cost that you're going to spend. And if you get one good person, uh, hopefully that person is going to add value to the business itself, not just be window dressing on a sale. So that that's one criteria. Uh, the other thing is to be honest with yourself. Don't don't nobody generally people don't like to sell when things are good. But remember, businesses go bad or have hiccups at the very least. So uh, if if you think you're about where you should be and things are good, you should really give a lot of thought to doing something uh, sooner than more sooner than later. Uh, uh, another tip is if you're thinking of selling, even though you're not thinking of selling for a couple of years for a number of reasons, bring in a banker up front and. Talk to him about the process. Get him involved, so that'll help you determine what you you know what you might have be able to do that adds value, or maybe to challenge you that you should sell now, even though you don't want to sell. You know, a lot of people uh, hire people to manage their their stock portfolio. Why do they hire them? Because it takes the the personal aspect out of it and is more of the business aspect. So we we sort of do the same thing. So those are just some tips, uh, and, and obviously, uh, by by bringing an advisor aboard, you're going to get a lot more tips that are specifically relevant to a specific business. Once someone comes in and and understands who you are and, and what your strengths and weaknesses are, and the goal is to build up your build up your strengths and uh, whatever you can do to to get rid of your weaknesses, if you can do it. Fred, can you give us give our listeners a couple of the pitfalls of trying to negotiate the sale of the business uh, themselves rather than using a professional such as an investment banker? Really good point. Uh, uh, most buyers, the reason you're going to do it yourself is because a guy calls you and says, "Yeah, I'd like to buy your business." Or two guys call, and you, you, so you say, "I'll deal with, I'll, I'll deal with it myself," uh, or, or I'll have my accountant deal with it. Uh, the, the, the problem with that is that most buyers are smart buyers, and what they want is that they don't want anyone, they don't want any competition. Uh, in fact, a lot of buyers will say, in this situation, if you bring in a banker, I'm not interested. Well, what they're really saying is, I mean they're interested or they wouldn't be calling you. What they're really saying is, I want to buy you at a good price. If you bring someone else in that's going to bring other people to the table, the price is going to go up. So I'm going to take a shot at saying, you know, if you bring someone in, I'm uh, uh, I'm not interested. Well, if they're not interested, they're not interested. But if they are interested, they're willing to, you know, so they're professionals themselves, they want to do a deal. So the... the, uh, the uh, and what they tend to do, and if you start going down the line, I'm not saying this always happens, but it happens a lot. If you go down the line with that one guy who wants to buy you, what he's going to try to do is to string you out. The more he can string you out, the more committed you are to dealing just with him. 
and the more the word gets out that you're going to sell. So you're now sort of committed to deal with that person. And they have a, you know, a good buyer has a lot of strategies to string you out longer. And then once you're three or four months down the road with him and he knows he's the only guy, it's not unlikely that he's going to say, you know, I can't get all the financing I need. I know I told you I'd pay you X. I can only pay you 85% of X. Now you've got two choices. Take the 85% because your employees know about it. Your customers start to know about it now. He's learning a lot about your business, and you don't have anybody else to turn to. So uh, one of the reasons you use a one of the things that we know, even us, that once a buyer, once you pick the one buyer that's the best buyer for you, uh, and we go down the road, at least 50% of the time that buyer walks away. Maybe he can't get the financing, whatever. But our goal is to have a number two or a number three person standing by. We're not going to let them stretch the deal. And if they have to walk away for whatever reason, we don't have to start all over again. There's a number two there who can come right in. He's already said he wanted you. He knows about the business. Our job is to keep him around and so that he can step in and you now have another buyer, hopefully, that, that can close the deal within the next three to four weeks rather than another starting all over again and, and, and being six or seven months out. So, I mean, that's, that's why you should not. The good news is you don't have to pay a banker. Uh, the bad news is, and you can probably close the deal, but you're running, you're, you're exposing yourself to uh, that one buyer paying a lot less than he would have to pay and possibly ultimately walking and and now you're you're embarrassed you, you might put your company in a bad position uh, i mean uh, the uh, i'll answer it this way if big companies with all their own resources and all their talented people generally hire bankers to do a deal that you know they have the good people in house that can do it too uh, it always amazes me that there are a lot of small business owners who should probably do the same thing, but uh, uh, but think they can do it themselves, and 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 generally don't do as well as as they could if they did hire someone. Fred, let's we're going to go to a roundup. We're almost out of time here. I want to say hi to our technical director, but uh, we'll be right back. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yes, Dieter. Do we have you online? I thought I was waiting for your music. My 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 engineer fell asleep. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, Dieter. I know this is not your subject here, and uh, you're not going to sell your business, I don't think. But I just wanted to pull you on the line and say hello and see if you had anything you wanted to add. Oh, certainly. I learned quite a few things. Uh, which I did not learn in uh, School of Engineering when we talked about economics. <laughs> Completely different thing. I also learned that my company is virtually worthless, <laughs> but I'm the, I'm the only, I'm the, the telephone answering <laughs> service, the director, the vice president, you name it, I have, uh, and president, I'm everything. So we can't sell that one. But I think there were a couple of, of of interesting points that have to be made, and whether it is directly um, connected to the selling or buying of a business, that there are certain aspects of financial considerations uh, which most people don't know anything about, including me. Um, I, uh, I'm not an expert over there. I know how to spend money, but I don't know how, uh, how to manage it in, in, in the most efficient way. Let's put it that way. That is probably a good way of putting it. So I, 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 I listened very carefully and I said, wow, you know, if I had to do this and this and this, I know nothing about it. I better call somebody who does. There you go. Well, 
And okay, am I still on the phone? You are yes. absolutely. If you are, I, let, let, let me just comment. I never Please. did say that if you if you're the whole business, your business is worthless. What I said is that's just not true because you have a customer base. What I'm saying is the more important you are to the business, the less valuable the business is. So that if you have an opportunity to make yourself. Uh, more of a uh, of a planner and not the operator, you will clearly add add value to the business if you have the ability to do that. Which isn't to say that it doesn't have value. I didn't mean to put that. I I know that I was that I, yeah saying that with tongue in cheek. <laughs> yeah, you've got some great contacts, dear. That's for sure. Doctor Wild uh, does a lot well, of well, that's all right. Yeah, and so on. So okay. Well, we've got to. Uh, Unless you had another comment you wanted to make, Dieter, we're going to wrap uh, no, things not up. really. I, um, I uh, like I said, I think it was quite interesting to me because it is a topic about which I really know very, very little, almost nothing. Well, so uh, I listened carefully and I said, "Wow, there are a couple of points that you should keep in mind, not necessarily pertaining to buying and selling a business, but looking at an overall thing of a corporation." And, and, and how things are uh, working. How to operate your business, too. I learned quite a few oh, things. That is correct, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's bring uh, Fred back in, and then we, um, I kind of wanted to give Cliff a last word because oh, I sure. know he brought you on, and uh, sure, we Fred. appreciate him doing that and you joining us. Yeah, Fred, I guess my final question is, in your experience, do entrepreneurs make good employees after they sell their businesses? More times than not, no. And I'll tell you why. Sometimes there's not just one way to do things. There's more than one right way to do it. And an entrepreneur knows, is comfortable, that the way he knows how to do it will be successful. And it's often very hard for an entrepreneur to, uh, to, who makes his own decisions to do it some other guy's way. Even if that other guy's way ultimately is successful as well, it's it's still frustrating. And in most instances, when in a, a seller entrepreneur has takes a position with a buying company, in at least seventy to eighty percent of the cases, in two to three years or less, that person's gone. Hmm. Is it? It is fairly, as I understand, and I could be wrong. You know much more about this than me, but is it? fairly common for the seller to take a position with the company that they are uh, selling to the the purchaser yeah uh, a- absolutely uh, you know sometimes you're going to sell to the company because you you like the people who are there and you'd still like you, you want to cash out but you'd still like to be involved uh, and so it's not uncommon to do that and sometimes uh, it might be even a great opportunity if you have a good small business but you have a lot more skills, you might say, if I go with a bigger company, A, I'll cash out, and B, I can now grow with this other bigger company and take on more responsibilities that would be exciting to me. And sometimes that works out, but as I say, more times than not, it just isn't a good fit. And an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur, and he's not a good employee. Well, before we go, is there anything you'd like to add, a final thought or comment, Fred? We appreciate you joining us. Well, I don't have anything else to add. I appreciate it. I think you asked some good questions, and hopefully I, I said some things that are of interest, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Well, Fred, how can our listeners get in contact with you? Well, they can uh, uh, call me. Uh, probably, you can email me at fred.rock, R-O-C-K, at focusbankers.com. That's focusbankers, plural. FOC US Bankers, or you can call me at my office at 412-281-1014. Well, thank you once again, Fred Rock, for joining us today, investment banker. Fred Rock uh, with the Focus Bankers, we do appreciate it, and I hope to see you again sometime and talk to you again. All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks once again to our guest today, Mr. Fred Rock. I also want to thank, of course, the Z-Man for... It was another good day, too. It was, letting me sit in here and uh, learn a few things. Of course, uh, Austin Novak for joining us at the controls. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next week for the next edition of... Oh, by the way, 
I think next week we might be off, Cliff. It's Memorial Day. Oh, is it? Yeah, okay, I guess so. We're off then. Two weeks from today for okay. the next edition of IAQ Radio. IAQ Radio Production. Call recording has been completed.